Welcome to Long Story Short, sponsored by the Kirkpatrick Foundation. I'm Ted Struley, Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. We're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. Keaton Ross writes about criminal justice at Oklahoma Watch, and he's been following a Department of Corrections proposal that would have teenagers working as prison guards. Keaton, what exactly is the Department of Corrections asking the legislature to do? Sure. They're they're asking the, the legislature to lower their, their minimum hiring age from 20 uh, to 18. Um, they There would still be the same requirements they have now as far as uh, you need to have a high school diploma or equivalent. Um, you need to have a clean background check and all of that. Um, but that age would come down by two years, and, and they say they would the 18- and 19-year-olds would work as detention officers with uh, limited job requirements. So would these 18- uh, and 19-year-olds, uh, would they be overseeing inmates, or would they be doing other other jobs? Yeah, I, I asked the Department of Corrections, and they said it would uh, be based on ability and experience. Um, so not a direct no to that question of will they be overseeing in- inmates. Um I did talk to Bobby Cleveland, who's the head of the Oklahoma Corrections Professionals Group, and he said his understanding of it uh, in talking with DOC is that they would not have a lot of interaction with prisoners. It would mostly they would mostly be doing tasks like screening visitors coming into prison facilities um, where there's not as much direct contact, um, but haven't gotten a definitive no on that question. So. What do the current correctional officers and their advocates think about this proposal? Yeah, so as I mentioned, um, talking with Bobby Cleveland, he he supports the the proposal as long as um, the more experienced officers are the ones who are interacting with the prison population, um, doing the more difficult and sensitive tasks. Um, he sees it as a possible solution to uh, bring more workers into the correction system and uh, alleviate the the staffing issues we've seen over the past several years. Um, I talked to one former corrections officer who was hired on when he was 20, um, left the agency last year. Um, he he told me that he isn't sure if there are enough roles for 18 and 19 year olds in the correction system, um, and expressed concerns that it is a sensitive job, and um, he's worried that if if they are filling these roles, you know. We, you know, they 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 just wouldn't be as prepared as they should be. Uh, what uh, is there other precedent for this? What do do other states hire teenagers to do these jobs? Yeah, so both states set their minimum hiring age at, at twenty or twenty one, as well as the Federal Bureau of Prisons. Um, but there are um, some surrounding states, neighboring states to Oklahoma, that do set their minimum hiring age at eighteen. Um, for example, Texas. New Mexico, Kansas, um, and we also see at the local level at county jails like the Oklahoma County Jail or the Tulsa County Jail, uh, they will hire detention officers um, who are 18 and 19. Well, if the Corrections Department's request makes it through the legislature, when would the change take effect? Yeah, so it would likely take effect November of 2022. 
um, if it is passed in the legislature next session. Um, of course, that would require a lawmaker to to carry the bill and make it through all the committees and and ultimately pass a vote in the House and Senate. So it's a long process from becoming proposal uh, to law and something that the Corrections Department can do. Um, but it is a possibility. All right. Well, thanks, Keaton. Listeners, be sure to follow all of Keaton's criminal justice coverage at OklahomaWatch.org. Jennifer Palmer covers education for Oklahoma Watch and had some breaking news when Catherine Steno resigned as Epic Charter School's board vice chairwoman, writing a scathing three-page letter. Jennifer, who is Catherine Steno and what do we know about her? So Catherine Steno was appointed to the Epic Board in December 2020. She's actually the um, longest or was the longest serving board member. Um, Epic's board has undergone a full turnover as part of their, um, you know, working with the statewide virtual charter school board on some, um, some issues they had with their contract violations. Um, so they've replaced all the board members. Um, you know, she has a lot of experience um, in education, uh, especially compared to many of the other board members. Um, you know, she's been a classroom teacher. She's done education research. She has a doctorate in educational leadership, and she's currently an assistant professor of education at Southwest Christian University. Well, her three-page resignation letter detailed uh, quite a few concerns. What what did she bring up? Yeah, like you said, quite a few things. Um, kind of the top of the letter um, had to do with some intimidation and harassment of women at Epic. Um, she said they're both current and former employees, um, you know, and and basically called out the board chair, uh, Paul Campbell, um, as, as being responsible for that. Um, she also brought up some concerns about um, data and certain things not getting to the board, some data on students being withdrawn for truancy, which, uh, you know, we have reported before, um, some large unapproved bonuses for certain employees. Um, she said, you know, that was not presented to the board. Um, or was withheld from the board. And then um, she had some issues with a RIF, uh, some layoffs that occurred recently, Um, said there was no board policy, there was a questionable need for those. She found out about it, like the other board members, by reading news reports. Um, And then lastly, she said there were issues of uh, potential violations of the Open Meeting Act. Um. You mentioned the uh, intimidation and harassment uh, that she made allegations about in her resignation. Now, she isn't saying she was the victim of that. Is that right? These are are other employees that that had come to her and made allegations? That's right. These are other women. They are not named in the letter. Um, She said she is referring those um, women to proper authorities, but she is not um, saying that she was personally harassed. Okay. Uh, one concern that that she mentioned in her resignation uh, were the layoffs that Epic had last month. You mentioned the ref, the reduction in force. Who did they lay off, and what were her concerns about those layoffs? Yeah, there's been a lot of um, people leaving Epic either through the layoffs or through resignations in the last month or so. Um, one thing uh, Steno mentioned in her letter was that the internal auditor had resigned, and she alleged that. Um, you know, she resigned due to this hostile environment. 
Um, and then the, the RIF, the reduction in force, included three others on the internal audit team. So basically the entire internal auditing team. Um, it also included Shelly Hickman, who has been a the communications director, this, the spokeswoman for the school for many, many years. Um, she was part of the RIF. Um, and then, you know, her husband, Bill Hickman, is an attorney who has represented uh, the Community Strategies Board and the school for um, many, many years. He is no longer doing that. He, he has pulled his contract, apparently. Um, and then, you know, the, the PR firm that has um, worked with Epic for many years also pulled their contract. So quite, quite a few um, people um, or entities leaving. Well, it, it was a, uh, a strongly worded, lengthy resignation letter. How did Epic respond to that? So I reached out to Paul Campbell, um, you know, right away over the weekend. Um, he referred questions to their new communications director um, since, like I said, Shelly Hickman is gone now. Um, basically, their response said that there is an internal investigation now and in, that they take these allegations very seriously. Um, but they also said that um, preliminary results show that there was no evidence. And this statement was sent out only three days after the resignation and the allegations were made. So um, I don't know. We'll, we'll see if anything comes of that or if any other regulators step in. All right. Well, thanks, Jennifer. Uh, listeners, you can read that entire resignation letter. Uh, it's embedded with Jennifer's story at Oklahoma Watch. Dot org, where you can also follow all of Jennifer's education coverage and subscribe to her Education Watch newsletter. That's at oklahomawatch.org. Paul Money's covers state agencies for Oklahoma Watch, and he's working on a story about problems at the state's public health lab. Paul, it's been more than a year since the health department officials and uh, Governor Kevin Stitt announced a new public health lab in Stillwater. How's that new lab faring? Well, it's um, it's moved, so it's there, and they have equipment. Um, but, um, you know, I've been talking to some former employees about the health department and the lab, and um, it's got a bit rocky. And we've reported this previously this year. We had um, some issues with shortages from uh, staffing, uh, making a transition from Oklahoma City, where the previous public lab was, to Stillwater. Um, and so they had to kind of outsource or reference out, is what they call in lab language, some of these tests, including, um, you know, some fungal test that they do. Um, now, the officials at the time back in February said this was expected as they get new equipment and test it and get it ready. And they knew that not everybody was going to make the transition to Stillwater. Um, but, you know, from talking to folks, uh, you know, in recent months, um, some of those issues are still going on. Uh, in fact, they've had some some problems you know, getting test results quickly for sexually transmitted diseases. And so some of the people outside of the health department have con raised concerns on that front. And, you know, they've, they've gotten uh, pretty much they're now on their third lab director since the move. And so it's going to kind of be un unsteady at the top. And so it's, it's not gone great, um, but they are still doing some testing up there at the lab, including COVID testing. They took out newborn testing, screening testing, and then sent it out to some labs in Pennsylvania for a while, but then have since brought it back uh, this past summer. But it's, it's been a little rocky transition, to say the least. And why, why did they want to move the lab to Stillwater in the first place? Well, at, at the time, um, this was last October in 2020, the pandemic was obviously about six months old at that time. Um, you know, the, the old health department headquarters in Oklahoma City were transitioning to a new office building downtown, um, former um, 
Sandridge building there that they were taking some, several floors over. And they just didn't have the room or the capability in that new leased space to do a public health lab. And their old public health lab in Oklahoma City at the old headquarters was, you know, showing its age. It, it's been around since, the I think, the 70s maybe and did not have that most, you know, up-to-date um, floor plan or other stuff like that, but it was still a functioning lab. And so they decided, um, the city administration along with the health department, decided to combine the new public health lab in Stillwater with what they're calling the Oklahoma Pandemic Center of Innovations and Excellence, which was kind of to research the whole next pandemic, so we're more prepared that time around, um, an intersection of the food supply and animal illnesses and pandemics for the human side too, and can kind of combine it all in Stillwater under that, that umbrella. Gotcha. So who's, you mentioned there have been three directors. Who's running the lab now, and, and what does that person bring to the job? Well, right now, um, there's an interim lab director, and they've got job postings for a new one. Um, we talked to them a couple weeks ago, and they said that process is kind of ongoing for the new director. But um, essentially, the lab has been privatized, and the management is done by Prairie One Solutions, which is kind of an arm of the Oklahoma State Research Foundation, um, they contracted with them, basically gave them a management fee. Uh, now, the whole idea of the business plan was they were going to, you know, increase efficiencies at the lab and then also make some money um, creating what's called a biorepository, which is, you know, kind of a, a way to keep samples and testing um, stuff in Stillwater and offer your services to other labs so they can calibrate test equipment and so they can, you know, make sure that their tests are collecting the right things compared to the reference sample that the lab would keep. Um, that biorepository is not up and running. They were hoping to get some revenue from that, but it's not happened yet. Um, you know, the health department has said that some supply chain issues have kind of caused some delays on that front. Gotcha. Uh, you'd mentioned that the federal government recently had an unannounced inspection of the lab in Stillwater. Do we know what they found, what's in the report? We don't know other than kind of the broad kind of strokes of what they found. Um, in fact, we had gotten wind at Oklahoma Watch this um, inspection had gone on at the end of September over a couple of days. It was an unannounced inspection by the Federal um, Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services, which is in charge of all the labs across the country and kind of making sure all the, the standards are kept up to date and, and everyone's doing what they're supposed to do. Um, the health department got a couple of media inquiries a couple of weeks ago and um, decided to kind of release a bare bones description of the inspection report, but declined on several times to re- release the whole report. Uh, obviously, they've got some open records requests pending for that. They said that they can't technically release it until the federal government finalizes their action plan, which they've sent off and kind of need the okay from from the feds. And so um, we're still kind of waiting on that. But obviously, it's, it's pretty serious when the feds come in and look at a lab like that on that front, and especially if it was an unannounced visit that kind of was prompted by complaints. All right. Well, thanks, Paul. You can read all of Paul's coverage about the public health lab in Stillwater and other state agencies at OklahomaWatch.org. Oklahoma Watch is a nonprofit organization specializing in investigative journalism. You can find us on the web at OklahomaWatch.org. I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening. We'd like you to know that we're a 501c3 And in order to bring you consistent, investigative, nonpartisan journalism throughout Oklahoma, we rely on donors like you. During the months of November and December, we participate in a program called Newsmatch, where a couple of large public foundations match every single dollar that readers and listeners like you contribute to our organization. If you value the news that we provide, 
you can go to oklahomawatch.org, go to our donation page, and every dollar that you're able to donate will be matched by the Newsmatch program from now through the end of the year. Thanks for listening.